Since 1983, the third Monday of January is recognized as a federal holiday to commemorate Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday. In the state of Alabama, that same day is also recognized as Robert E. Lee Day. Grappling with this simultaneous celebration and the state's complex civil rights history is Blake Busman, Director of Social Studies Education for the Alabama State Department of Education. Blake grew up in Atlanta and as a child would visit the plantation owned and operated by his ancestors during the Civil War. He earned his undergraduate degree, master's, PhD, and a certificate in education, instructional, and curriculum supervision from Auburn University in Auburn, Alabama, from which both of his parents also graduated. Furthermore, Blake's 22 years in the classroom were spent at Auburn High School. So how does someone with this deep Southern heritage become responsible for and passionate about helping teachers and students reconsider narratives about the long civil rights movement that can seem embedded in the culture? That, according to him, has been an interesting progression. Welcome to Fund for Teachers, the podcast. I'm Carrie Caton, and the goal of each episode is to elevate teachers as the inspiring architects of their careers, classrooms, and school communities. Today, we learn from Blake Busbin, a two-time Fund for Teachers fellow who now leads the department responsible for providing support to teachers and schools throughout Alabama in the implementation of the Social Studies course of study. Prior to beginning this role last year, Blake completed two Fund for Teachers fellowships. First, in 2020, he used a fellowship grant to study key battlefields and sites of the Civil War, with particular attention given to analyzing the monuments and historical interpretations that reflect the historical memory of the Civil War. Then, last summer with our Innovation Circle grant, which is available to fund for teachers' fellows, Blake continued his research by exploring the region in which slavery flourished the most during the antebellum era, the Deep South from New Orleans up the Mississippi River to Natchez County to address how we as a society utilize commemorative landscapes for the lack thereof to engage with more difficult parts of our history, notably that of slavery. Professional recognition for Blake's work in the classroom include the Alabama History Teacher of the Year, the Krista McAuliffe Reach for the Stars Award given by the National Council for the Social Studies, and he was also a finalist for the Alabama Teacher of the Year, and a finalist for the Marbury Technology Innovation Award given by the Alabama Department of Education. Clearly, his degree of expertise and experience made him a wonderful guest for this podcast to dialogue about Black history and how we teach it. I will start this podcast the way that we start every podcast, and that is, what made you decide to be a teacher? I grew up in a family that had some teachers. My mom was a home economics teacher. I had several very influential teachers in my life during high school, especially at a time that was challenging to me in terms of family life. And I think in terms of being a social studies teacher, both my grandfathers, who were veterans, had immense book collections at their home that I always was borrowing from. They were always feeding that love for history. And for me, That kind of influence from the school side of teachers and that love for history from my grandfather's really blended. And part of me wanted to be a minister growing up. And from my religious views, I found that education was almost a ministry type field in serving others. 
So education was to me that natural fit and uh, declared educate social studies education is my major right away at Auburn and uh, never looked back. You got your your undergraduate degree from Auburn, your master's. Correct. Also from Auburn, your Ph.D. Correct. Uh, Yeah, I I was very fortunate to go into the James Madison Fellowship straight out of undergrad at Auburn. And so that allowed me to get my master's early on and um, decided after a few years in the classroom, I just wanted to get my doctorate for the purpose of just uh, really challenging myself academically and always wanting to have that opportunity. And then you also got a certificate also from Auburn. Right. In educational leadership. And then you taught at Auburn High School? Taught at Auburn High School, uh, which is the high school for the growing town of Auburn. Taught there, actually started as an emergency sub hire during my master's program. And that teacher never came back and they asked me if I'd stay on. And so my, my whole teaching experience, minus my internship, was at Auburn High School. Suffice it to say, you're a Southerner. How did you become passionate about Civil War Memorial and the narratives that were shared and are being changed, having grown up and grown up really professionally in Auburn, Alabama? So that was an extremely long transition into that. Uh, My first five years, I taught AP government as well as American government for seniors. I then taught AP U.S. history for seven or eight years. And I I switched over to teaching our 10th grade course, non-AP, which is U.S. history up through Reconstruction. And then looking at those standards, the standards very much have a clear trajectory leading towards and culminating in that Civil War period, especially the the second half of of the standards. And actually, when I applied for my fellowship, it was pre-George Floyd. So, but there had already been that discussion about monuments, especially in the wake of Dylan Roof, uh, atrocious crimes in Charleston, and the debate over the Confederate flag. But I wanted to approach it not just from what should we do about the monuments, but also how do we approach monuments as historical artifacts? How do we have our students think critically about the design, Uh, not just should we leave them up, should we take them down? A big part of monuments, especially Civil War monuments, is the symbolism. Uh, They have a lot of mythological figures embodied in them. So it was not just a history point of view, but also an art history point of view, is thinking about what do these say about democracy? What do these say about war in society, peace in society? and how we mourn our dead. So there were a lot of questions that uh, I felt students could think about. And especially, I love place-based learning. I love taking my students out into the community. When I taught AP U.S. history, uh, when we studied the Vietnam War, we had a cemetery behind our school, and we would go to the graves of those Auburn High School students who had died in the Vietnam War. And, and talk about those individuals. And, and I like that idea of engaging your students and studying their community. And so being able to think about monuments, not just what do they represent, but how do we analyze them was a key driving factor. Well, also leading up your fellowship, or maybe at the same time, actually, on July the 10th in 2021, the city of Charlottesville, Virginia, removed the Robert E. Lee statue. Were you on your fellowship during that time? Where were you when that happened? I was not in Charlottesville. I'd done most of my travels in June. 
I was able to see the Robert E. Lee statue at Richmond, Virginia, before that was taken down. And the one in Richmond really posed some questions to me that for discussion about monument analysis is with all of the markings that have been made on it in the protest. Did that then constitute a new monument in a way? Because monuments not only reflect the period that they're representing, but they reflect the period in which they were made. And so there's that kind of dual analysis that students have to engage in when thinking about a monument. Uh, what does it say about the period in which it was erected? And what does it say about what it's actually representing? I referenced your fellowship, but uh, for our listeners, for your 2021 fellowship, you studied the key battlefields and sites of the American Civil War, 16 Southern towns, with particular attention given to analyzing the monuments and historical interpretations, such as museums, that reflect the historical memory of the Civil War in preparation for a course unit on Civil War memory. Part of what you said in your post-fellowship reporting was that that process, this road trip on which you embarked, really included a lot of unlearning. Yeah. Really, when thinking about growing up in the South, growing up with grandfathers who took me to battlefields, growing up in Atlanta, we would go to the Cyclorama. The Civil War was kind of this epic, but it only focused around the soldiers, the battles. And when I was taking these trips, it really got me to thinking about those individuals that are not represented on the battlefields or not represented in the interpretation. And I began paying careful attention to wayside markers that provide some commentary. For example, the Battle of Chancellorsville, Chancellorsville in Virginia, they're adding new wayside markers to talk about the enslaved people that lived around the battle. Gettysburg is doing a great job of trying to begin to communicate to visitors how the battle impacted the lives of the people who lived within Gettysburg. And that was something I also wanted my students to grapple with in thinking about monuments is who is not represented in monuments and what would that representation perhaps look like? How do we represent perhaps the widow of a soldier? How do we think about their contributions? I paid very careful attention when I was in Washington, D.C., to the USCT monument they have right outside of the African-American Civil War Museum. Uh, in Vicksburg, uh, Vicksburg National Battlefield, they have a USCT monument. So USCT meaning? Uh, United States Colored Troops. So uh, in most cases, formerly enslaved Black men who joined the United States military during the Civil War, uh, USCT was the name given to uh, those soldiers at that period. But I wanted to also think about how is that now represented on our battlefields? Because those were not the statues that were put up in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And so finding those type of representations or where they're not represented, uh, for example, representations of Native Americans who served during the Civil War, what, what would that perhaps look like? Also in your post-fellowship reporting, you said, my final stop on the last leg of my trip was to the plantation that once belonged to my family, the Middleton Place outside Charleston. What was that like? It was very much a difficult experience in terms of reflecting on my own history. Growing up, my family always traveled to the Charleston area, originally from Atlanta, and, and we would stop them. It's a 
famous tourist attraction. Uh, the plantation itself is no longer standing, but the gardens are very famous. And so we always grew up there, but it was a history that I was not aware of. As I prepared for my trip, I did want to engage with sites that dealt with slavery and enslavement. And I was reading some books about tours that do a really good job providing the tr true history and Middleton Place was mentioned in one, and, and that brought back a lot of memories from my childhood, have, having gone there. And I knew I wanted to go to Charleston to see how Fort Sumter is interpreted, the slave trade in the area, with how they show that history. I, I was able to take a history of enslavement at the Middleton Place, and it, it was, for me, very conflicting. It was hard for me to think about, okay my family had done this and what is my role today in to try to make amends with that yeah there there are a few markers but a lot of unmarked graves and i took a lot of pictures of there and and i put those on uh my kind of discussion about plantation life etc is what do we not know who are these individuals whose stories we, we have lost? And, and so that was one way to think about it. So what did it look like when you brought all of this back to your to your students at Auburn High School? Like, were they confused about why you were doing this? Were they curious? Were they receptive? Yeah, it, it, um, it makes for some really interesting learning. Uh, <laughs> I took thousands of pictures uh, along this time, especially some of the more abstract monuments. Uh, because those kind of gave us an opportunity to talk about the other elements of the Civil War. For example, in Arlington, Virginia, what well, during the Civil War was known as a contraband camp, but really a refugee camp. Uh, and there's a monument there that had just recently been put up. And so that represents some stuff that we don't often think about in the Civil War. So I embedded a lot of those photographs into PowerPoints or activities, slideshows for students to really generate some discussion. And what I ended up creating as their culminating project was the challenge of there is no such thing as a national Civil War monument. Uh, we have a national World War II monument sitting on, on the Washington Mall. We've got our Vietnam Memorial. But what would a national Civil War monument look like? And so the students spend several days working on this. They define what is the Civil War. What would the monument represent time period-wise? Would it merely be the years of the war? Or do you move it all the way to beginning of enslavement? Do you move it to 1848, the end of the uh, Mexican-American War, when tensions really begin to rise within the United States? Do you include abolitionists like Frederick Douglass, John Brown, William Lloyd Garrison? Are, are they represented on your monument? Does the monument merely end with the end of the Civil War? And, and even then, what is the end of the Civil War? Is it Lee's surrender? Is it uh, the final battle? Or do you pick it up, pick it up, carry it forward through Reconstruction even to today? So students had to kind of make those decisions of how do I define this period of time? They had to think about who would be represented on the monument. They had to justify where it would be placed. Uh, and we had everything from... New York City, Washington, D.C. Some students put uh, New Orleans, being that New Orleans was very much a center of the slave trade. 
So students had those types of decisions to make, and then they designed a blueprint of what they would include. They got to choose quotes, historic quotes from different figures to include on it. So students really went all out with this opportunity to think about what is a monument, what does it communicate, who is their target audience with it. Um, So it was a great learning experience and absolutely some of the most favorite things I've ever graded. And then you deepened that learning with another Fund for Teachers grant called Innovation Circle Grants. And with an Innovation Circle grant, our fellows can access additional funds to deepen their research on a topic. And you used yours to explore the region in which slavery flourished the most during the antebellum era, the Deep South, from New Orleans up the Mississippi River to Natchez County to address, again, really how as a society we utilize landscapes and or the lack thereof to engage the more difficult parts of our history, notably slavery. So can you talk a little bit more about how that learning for you continued? Yeah, I, um, for me, I want to see how is slavery represented still? How, how are we confronted with this history? I selected numerous plantation sites and also was able to find uh, a self-guided walking tour of New Orleans that was both focused on enslavement and resistance and resilience, because that was an important part for me, too, uh, is that when we teach about slavery, we also want to show the resistance and the resilience in the culture that was able to grow through this system. And so I, I made efforts to go to places like Congo Square, where culture exploded. I was able to track the path of the German coast uprising in South Louisiana and see how that's interpreted. So those were some some conscious efforts to not only study enslavement itself, but also study the resistance to it. And you had some interesting conversations on that fellowship as well, one with a National Park Service ranger and then another with some Mardi Gras Indians, you said. What were those about? So at one of the plantations, the Mardi Gras Indians, which is a, a group uh, within New Orleans who takes great pride in their ancestry and their involvement in creating a unique culture, they perform music, they talked about cuisine, all of which originated from this blending of cultures under slavery. And, and then when I was able to go to a certain national park site, uh, and sit down and talk with a park ranger. And this was a, at a former plantation. For over an hour, we talked about how she works with student groups um, from all ranges, from elementary up through high school, and the questions that students present to her and how she uh, interprets the site for them. And so that was really telling for me is how do our public historians work with audiences that have different understandings and different lenses when they approach these sites? which turned out to be incredibly prescient because in between when you applied for this fellowship and when you returned, your classroom was no longer Auburn High School. It is the state of Alabama, and your audience are really teachers who teach social studies and history. Can you talk kind of about how that transitioned? Yeah, it was a very quick transition, and I was so excited for this grant opportunity I had also applied for and been accepted to uh, Ford Theater Set in Stone Summer Institute in July, which focuses on monuments and memorials in Washington, D.C. So I had this kind of grand vision for how uh, my curriculum was going to grow as a result of these extra trips. But opportunity of a lifetime came around, applied for a position as the social studies specialist in Alabama. And was blessed to have that opportunity. And so I had to think about, okay, how do I translate this into my new position? 
So in thinking about it, Alabama doesn't have the plantation sites that Louisiana has or Mississippi for that matter. Certainly slavery was very prominent in Alabama, but those public sites are, are not as in abundance as they might be elsewhere. But what I really wanted to think about is how do we use place-based learning to grapple with this more difficult history? And Alabama is certainly known for its civil rights movement history, whether it be Birmingham, Montgomery, Selma, I would argue Tuscaloosa, Aniston, the Freedom Riders. Every community has its own story. And so I wanted to translate what I had been doing into how do we utilize these partnerships. Uh, For example, in Birmingham, we have the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute. Uh, We have the now Birmingham Civil Rights National Monument. Selma to Montgomery is a national park site. How do I foster relationships with our teachers and these public historians and sites to allow our students to visit them and get the most out of them that they possibly can to understand this history? I just think about the fact that you went and spoke with national park rangers and experts at these different um, museums and sites to research how they tell those stories. And now you are teaching teachers how to tell these stories, complicated histories. And one of the things that you have coming up is um, this partnership with the Alabama State Department of Education and the Alabama Archives for this summer. Yeah. So, Alabama celebrated its bicentennial uh, over a several-year period, just recently, culminating in 2019. And the archives generated these amazing workshops. They're now known as the Alabama History Institutes. This summer, there will be eight workshops spread around the state. Uh, They're teacher-led, which is fantastic. This past summer, before I took on this position, too, I'd led a three-day workshop uh, with a couple of other teachers Uh, that we called Freedom Road, and and it was a place-based learning. We uh, went to Tuskegee, Montgomery, and Selma over three days and talked about the civil rights history in each of those. And the teacher response from the participants was great. And in surveying teachers in my new position, many of them want more of that civil rights history and Black history. How do I teach this? And I want to get beyond that traditional narrative as well of Rosa sat on a bus, Martin gave a speech, and some laws were passed. The civil rights movement is so much more complex, so much more rich, and so much longer in size and scope. And when I got into this position, I reached out to the archive staff who lead those and essentially said, I, I don't want to not be part of this anymore. Can, can I pitch an idea? And see if this is something that we can run with. And so we talked about creating a series of workshops that would continue each summer, add one each summer that begin to tell that longer story. And so we are this summer having one that focuses really on that transition from reconstruction into uh, the Jim Crow period. And, And we've defined it largely from 1880 to 1919, but it's once again, it's a story of resilience as well. In planning with the two teachers, I, I once again want to put teachers up front. So we've got two teachers who are leading it. I'm helping them with the planning. We're focusing on HBCUs. Alabama State University is right down the road from where I'm at right now. Uh, we're focusing on religion uh, and church life. We're focusing on the stories of Africatown and G's Bend 
in these communities that uh, begin to develop, we're, we're focusing on po the populist movement, how farmers of color united under the populist movement to really pose an economic challenge uh, to the planter class uh, after the Civil War. We're adding women's voices with the women's club movements. So we're really excited to see how this uh, will grow and, and help kind of evolve that thinking about the civil rights movement as going beyond that traditional 13-year period. Blake, what would you recommend to teachers who, who would like to address this long civil rights movement or aspects that you are covering in Alabama where our teachers can't go and participate? Where would one go to start this work? I tell our teachers here in Alabama to utilize primary sources, have the, the people who experience the history talk for themselves, if you can. Uh, the Alabama archives is phenomenal. They have what's called the Alabama Teacher Hub, and it's got lesson plans. It's got primary source sets that teachers can access. And, and so that's a great place as well for teaching that history. But Alabama is bringing in a ton of students from outside our state. A couple Fridays ago, I was visiting the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute to talk with their education specialist, as well as the National Park Service, uh, which is located right next door. I met students from Tennessee, from Florida, from Oregon. And, and so there's students and classes are coming to Alabama to study this history because we, we are known for Birmingham, Selma, Montgomery, but Tuscaloosa, which is the home of the University of Alabama, the infamous stand in the schoolhouse door. But they themselves had a, a local uh, movement. Dr. King came and spoke in uh, Tuscaloosa, they had what was known as Bloody Tuesday, a very violent event. Uh, Tuskegee, uh, the history of Tuskegee, several huge court cases, uh, Supreme Court cases came out of Tuskegee. Um, Aniston, Aniston, where uh, the Freedom Riders, their buses bombed and, and set on fire. They have a, a small national park uh, site there. Uh, but also, what are some resources you can introduce your students to beforehand? What are some voices that that you should be aware of? Is there anything that I've not asked you about that you wanted to talk about or that you think is very important for teachers today to, to approach this history in new ways? I think it's important to remember that we're not alone in this battle. That doesn't all have to be difficult either. There, there are places of joy, places of celebration. One of the great things I love teaching teachers about is music. Um, the music of the civil rights movement, to find those elements and integrate those elements as well. And most importantly, partnerships. And, and that's what I'm doing right now is identifying these locations, identifying these experts. The teacher doesn't need to always feel the burden that they are the expert. There are people who are willing to aid them. Our National Park Service is absolutely incredible in what they're doing today to share this history. My last question. What role did Fun for Teachers have in this trajectory from you being an emergency substitute teacher to now being the head of social studies history for the state of Alabama? Fun for Teachers for me was that opportunity that it provided me that growth that you sometimes get in that mid-range of your teaching career where you might feel stuck uh, at a place. And it provided me that opportunity to develop that unique professional development that fit for me where I was in my learning journey. 
it allowed me to go out and learn so much more new information and challenged me to think about my own curriculum, my own pedagogy, and how I approached uh, some of these topics in the classroom. And, and then the innovation grant what was amazing because it took those lingering questions that I had after my uh, fellowship and allowed me to explore that even more. Uh, so it, it was transformative. It, it was such a great chance to go off and discover not only resources to bring into my classroom, but to discover information that changed my own thinking. We look forward to using this podcast to elevate more teachers as the inspiring architects of their careers, classrooms, and school communities. But you can learn from 9,000 Fund for Teachers fellows now by visiting fundforteachers.org slash blog, or check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you want to reach an engaged audience of educators, share your event or product in this podcast by becoming a sponsor. Connect with listeners as they tune in to be inspired by the groundbreaking work our fellows are accomplishing individually and in the classroom. Contact info at fundforteachers.org for more information. And finally, thank you Fund for Teachers Fellowship Grant and Innovation Circle Grant recipient Blake Busbin for sharing his learning and teaching about Civil War monuments and the long civil rights movement. You can access the archives in the curriculum Blake referenced at archives.alabama.gov. Right now, volunteers around the country are in the process of helping us select our 2023 fellowship grant recipients. However, if you are a Fund for Teachers fellow, please consider applying for an Innovation Circle grant like the one Blake received beginning March the 2nd. The application will be online at fundforteachers.org. I'm Carrie Caton. Thank you for joining us today at Fun for Teachers, the podcast. Until next time, keep learning.